This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg, and in this episode, I have the absolute pleasure to have as my guest a good friend of mine, so I'm pretty excited about this, Dave Phillips of Michael David Wines. He's a fifth-generation California native and grew up on the family homestead, which was settled by his great-great-grandparents in 1865. His misspent youth was spent driving tractors in the vineyards and growing fruit and vegetables to sell at the family's roadside fruit stands and local farmers' markets. After graduating Lodi High School, he attended UC Davis, graduating in 1987 with a degree in international agriculture development. His first job was working for a cork supply company in San Francisco. He was selling corks to wineries in Northern California. After meeting his future wife, Corrine, they traveled the world together for a year before returning to Lodi in 89 to join his brother, Michael, and his parents in the family business. The winery, bonded in 1984, while Dave was still in college, remained a small part, really, of the roadside sales in the fruit stand until the late 90s when the family decided to increase production of their own wines. Suddenly, Michael David Wines were winning gold medals and Best of Show awards. Dave oversaw early distribution and slowly started selling in a few markets. In 2002, Michael David Wineries came out with seven deadly zins, and of course, sales exploded. By 2004, Michael David grew from one small distributor in Chicago to distribution in all 50 states. Today, Michael David Wines have expanded their export business and are now sold in 32 countries. Dave and Corrine have two wonderful boys, Connor, 26, and Joseph, 23. Dave's passions include ultra running, mountain biking, triathlons, skiing, and thank God, eating and traveling the world. It is my great pleasure and privilege to welcome my friend Dave Phillips to the Vine Guy podcast. Hi, Dave. Hello, Scott. How are you doing? Well, I I am not running ultra marathons. <laughs> that's uh, for sure. Never too late. <laughs> you look great. We're doing this via Zoom, so I can see you, even though only the audio portion is going to appear on the podcast. But you look absolutely fantastic. It's been way too long, my friend, since we've shared a bottle or two of wine. But uh, it's it's good to catch up. And I have to say, I was just reviewing your Sixth Sense Syrah for a Halloween edition of yeah. both the podcast and the Wine of the Week show on WTOP. And I have to say, I, I just continue to fall in love with that wine every time I have it. And, you know, I always think of Lodi as kind of being a Zinfandel-centric area, but it's really much more than that. And, and I'd love for you to just share with our listeners, why, why is Lodi so special? Oh, wow. Um, you know, one, the history, the families here, you know, I'm, really proud that Lodi is 850 family farms surrounding our town, growing grapes, um, and among other things, cherries, walnuts, and some of the richest agricultural land in the world here in the Central Valley. But our climate in Lodi is a little microclimate compared to the rest of the Central Valley. You know, we're not like Bakersfield. We get, we get huge diurnal temperature swings from, you know, 9,500 degrees during the day in the summer, and then it'll drop to 55 at night on a typical August evening and grapes love that. So that's one of the one reasons why we can produce these beautiful dark, rich wines. 
and the soils here it's all you know sandy loam most most of what we farm is in the Macaulay River AVA of Lodi deep sandy loam soils where the roots can go down 20 30 feet into the soil and because sandy loam soils phylloxera does not live very well in those we've been able to preserve our old vines uh, we still have we're farming numerous vineyards over 80 100 years old on their own roots still that that true treasure to have. And when you say old vines, we're talking about old vine Zinfandel, correct? Zinfandel, but there's also some, we have the oldest vineyard in all of Lodi that we farm is our Senso vineyard. It's a wow. planted 1886, 25 acres of Senso on their own roots. Beautiful, beautiful wines we make out of that. And it's one of the few vineyards we sell to other wineries too. Turley makes a Senso with it as to, and Randall Graham always uses our Senso in his wines. So what would, um, what is old vines? What do we consider an old vine? How old does it have to be before it's old? I used to say older than me, but typically <laughs> the economic life of a typical vine is 30 years. So, okay. you know, if you're keeping a vineyard in over 30 years, it's already, it'll start, it starts to lose production and, you know, it doesn't become economically viable to keep those vines in unless you can really get something special out of them and hopefully get a premium price for those grapes. So. But I'd say most people around here would agree 40 plus is old vine, uh, 100 plus we call ancient vine. <laughs> wow. And is there much ancient vine left in, in Lodi? I'd say there's still a good, uh, uh, I'm not sure exactly, but there's at least uh, at least uh, more than three or 400 acres, I believe, of 100-year-old plus vines around Lodi. Yeah. There's still so, some if, so if a, a, a vine is really economically viable, as I think the term of art you used, for 30 years, is there a reason to keep older Zinfandel vineyards humming along? I mean, can they really be saved? Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't plant an old vine. So yeah, like we hope we're trying to save them. You know, Zinfandel kind of had its heyday and it's flat, the sales of it's flattened out. I mean, red Zinfandel is only 2% of the U.S. wine market. And uh, we need to up that a little bit and keep people drinking Zen if we're going to save these vines. Unfortunately, many of the old vine vineyards are being pulled out over the last few years. And I've seen a lot this year getting pulled out too. So just because they're not producing as much fruit or what's or would you not want to keep supply, supply and demand. I mean, yeah, if we go back to the eighties, Zinfandels were practically worthless and then white Zen got invented and all of a sudden everybody was making all kinds of money with their old vine Zen selling them to, you know, the big, you know, wineries that make white zin out of it. So white zin really saved the old vine zins, you know, wow. 30 years ago, 40 years ago. But, but you know, I, I think Zinfandel is an important grape to have in the world. And we hope um, we can keep them going. I didn't know white zin saved zin. I, I will never disparage another bottle of white Zinfandel again. Oh, sure. I remember back then, my family, my brother and I, we inherited the Carignans from the original homestead. Our, our cousins had the old vine Zins. And I remember in 1988, when white Zinfandel was hitting its peak, they got $1,000 a ton for their Zinfandel that year. And everyone got brand new pickup trucks. And we were still farming Carignans, getting 200 a ton. So. Driving the old pickup trucks. Yes. <laughs> So you you mentioned Carignan, you've mentioned Syrah, we've mentioned, of course, Zinfandel. I'm really very impressed with sort of this variety diversity that's that's in Lodi. What else is going on there? Is there room for varietal diversity in Lodi? There sure is. You know, Lodi can afford to experiment because, you know, 
an acre of land in Lodi is about one tenth the price of an acre of land in Napa. Wow, okay. And Napa, you really can't grow anything but Cabernet and get four thousand dollars a ton to to make a profit. Whereas in Lodi, you know, the land being much less expensive and fertile, we can experiment with all kinds of different things. Um, I mean, we, my brother was one of the first farmers to ever plant Syrah in the Central Valley back in 1980. So we still farm some of those original Syrahs that go into the sixth sense. And I've got friends planting all kinds of weird things here now, like, you know, from German varietals to, you know, we're doing, having great success in Lodi with things like Albarino and Grenache Blanca, the, you know, Spanish varietals, Portuguese varietals, you know, we play around with Suzao and Tariga. <laughs> Originally, Michael and I were Roan Rangers before we got into the Zen business. We were all big on Syrah. Still, I still think both of us would say Syrah is our favorite grape. Well, it's certainly one of my favorites. And of course, like I just said, this your sixth sense Syrah is spectacular. I, I really don't know how you can produce such a phenomenally delicious wine for the the price point you it is way offer. too low way too low a price for uh for the quality i mean it's a it's always gets high scores year after year after year uh, lots not, of gold medals it's it's won the Syrah du Monde competition in france i believe two times now gold medals um in the Syrah du Monde competition so we're very proud of that and the neat thing we're just shipping now the 2018 vintage i think you just reviewed the 2017 i did uh, look for the next vintage because it's in a brand new package we've updated the label to a really cool dark crazy label so i'm not saying this because you're my, my, my friend dave but I, I will tell you that that six cents the raw is really a wine worth probably four times the price and uh, it's uh it's not hyperbole that, that wine yeah. is delicious. And, and same thing it's hard to get it's, it's often hard to get straw on a on a wine list in a in fine dining restaurants um it's often hard to get straw in shelf space in a supermarket you you know there's you know the top five varieties kind of the same ones over and over again that's it's probably 90 percent of the market you know that people drink chardonnay cabernet you know, it's funny you say that though, because whenever I'm out with friends at, at say a steakhouse, right? We're we're sitting yep. around, we're all ordering steaks, and they hand me the wine list inevitably. And I and you know, I think what they immediately expect is I'm gonna go for a Cabernet Sauvignon. And yep. I will ask them, what are the qualities that you are looking for in a wine to have with dinner tonight? And they never say tomato leaf or bell pepper or <laughs> <laughs> they they describe Syrah. Inevitably, they, they describe Syrah. Leather, meat. Uh, <laughs> Smoked meat, you know, yes. well, you know and, and bacon fat, you know, and, and rich. Or they, you know, they always say, well, I want something rich and powerful and maybe a little bit fruit forward. And like, oh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll punch your ticket with Syrah every time. So it's interesting that you're talking about how um, uh, it's, it doesn't get the love it deserves. Right. I, I, yeah, you always think it's going to be the next big thing. Syrah's coming. And. Um, and, and one, and it's different, different parts of the country. Like right. we actually saw a lot of Syrah in the Northwest in Washington state because they're famous for, I mean, I, I love Washington state Syrahs. I drink them all the time. Yeah, I love right. Walla Walla. I, so it's in places that know Syrah, we can actually sell quite a bit. We, I export a bit to Canada and then, like I said, the Northwest, it's a pretty good market for Syrah, but overall it's really hard to get, you know, the shelf space and attention for Syrah. <laughs> For Syrah, but you know, you have 
several other. As a matter of fact, you have a wine, I believe, called Freak Show. Yes, we do. <laughs> and I, I see that that's one. That's our fastest growing thing right now. I see it everywhere, Dave. I, yep. I'm in Utah and I see it in Utah. Of course. <laughs> but I will say that um, you've got, you're in 38 different countries. You have done this amazing job of brand marketing across the United States. Mm-hmm. And and I remember, I mean, I remember early on in our friendship, you know, there were, you know, you were known for a few wines. And I remember one of them very fondly that unfortunately is is no longer among us, the incognito white. Love that wine, by the way. Please yeah. bring it back. <laughs> but I am very interested. What are your secrets to building such a successful brand? I mean, this is incredible i and i and i love the wines i love the price point of the wines but you've really taken this from and and let's be let's be very candid about this and don't be modest please you have taken from selling your wines in roadside stands yeah and farmers markets i used to deliver up the wine out of my back of my pickup truck going to to local stores before we could get any distributors would talk to us you know they wouldn't even talk to us back and now you are an international brand how? Yeah. What happened? Uh, oh, well, a lot of hard work, of course, but a lot of luck involved, too. I mean, you know, originally the name of the winery went way back was our last name, Phillips. And then we got sued by some other Phillips uh, companies <laughs> and had to change our name. As soon as we changed it to Michael David, our sales doubled. You know, we went from like a thousand cases to two thousand cases back then. Um, um, then having then thinking outside the box, getting cool, creative new labels. I mean. The Incognito label is actually the first of the kind of outside the box labels because it was a misidentified grape. We were making a Roussan and it turned out it wasn't Roussan at all. And it had just won the Rhone Wine of the World competition <laughs> as a Roussan. This is our back in 1999 at, at an LA County Fair that year in 2000 had a Rhone Wine of the World competition and we won the whole thing. So then the phone started ringing. And then we found out the next year that the, our Roussan wasn't really Roussan. It was actually a rare clone of Viognier. And that's what became the incognito Viognier. And I, yeah, and Viognier had a good run there. It kind of got hot for a while. And we were making like 6,000 cases of it. And and, um, and then, you know, Viognier just kind of fell off. <laughs> too, so. I don't know how that happened. I, you know, first I, know. I love Viognier. Although, you know what, I will say, and, and not to disparage uh, professional sommeliers, but it is interesting that in my experience, I have had Somalia's actually poo-poo Viognier. I love the floral characteristics of that wine, and I just think it's so food-friendly. Really. Yeah. And then, of course, our style, we were, make, we were pushing 15% alcohol in it some years, and that might have been a little too much. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got, you know, there, there are some, some of the Somalia's you're talking about or you know, it's, if they see it's over 14%, they're not ever going to buy it. <laughs> so. Oh, boy. Well, you know, I, I, you said the unique label, or that was your first kind of out-of-the-box label. If I'm remembering it correctly, was it kind of like a, a mask? Yep. It's just a, a girlfriend I went to high school with drew the label for me, which almost all of our labels have been done by people in our hometown of Lodi. And she drew the label, and it looked cool. And it was just the mysterious clone of Viognier. Here it is. And then... We followed it up with a red blend, so um, which we still have, um, with that red with a red mask instead of a black mask. But that was one of the first labels. But then in 2002, we came out with seven deadly zins, and things went nuts. <laughs> so, 
So how did you uh, come up with that title? Well, that's once I say it's the one good thing I got out of going to Catholic school. So my brother and I, you know, <laughs> forced through eight years of Catholic school. Luckily, I got into public high school, which at Lodi High. What did you have to apply to get into public high school? <laughs> <laughs> luckily, luckily, at that time, my parents had kind of gotten fed up with uh, some of the church, too, and didn't make me go anymore. Um, and we, we just had, in the year 2000, since we didn't have any Zins of our own, uh, well, we'd been we've been dabbling and buying a, f- a few tons from our cousins next door and from some of our friends down the road and making some single vineyard Zins out of it. That was in the late 90s. So in 2000, my brother and I were out tasting in the winery through all the barrels. And we had um, just happened to have seven different lots of Zinfandel. And my, Michael said to me, why don't we just make a blend them all into one wine instead of making seven different single varietal, you know, single vineyard Zins. I said, no, not a bad idea. Seven Zins and it just popped in my head. Seven deadly Zin. Oh, nice. Thanks to Catholic school. And I insisted that the label looked like, you know, biblical parchment paper. And and then my brother worked with a local artist that did the Z7 combination. And the rest is history. At that time, I might have been in five markets around the country. And I made a presentation to Cost Plus World Markets here. And they started selling it in California, and then within a few months, they said, we want to take it to all of our stores nationwide. Back then, Cost Plus was a pretty big wine retailer in the country. And I'm like, okay. And they said, here, fill out this grid. I'm like, what's a grid? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so then I started picking up the phone and calling distributors in you know, places like Alabama and Florida and saying, uh, Cost Plus wants our wine now. Will you take us? Like, they're like, okay. <laughs> so, wow. So that's how we grew from you know being in a few markets to all 50 states in a matter of two or three years. <laughs> I'm curious, what was what was the case production your first year of Seven Deadly Zins? First year was 1,000 cases, and the next year went to 12,000, then to 30, then to 60, then to 100. It just grew exponentially. And that's that's when I had five credit cards trying to grow as we were you know growing way too fast. Our local bankers were getting nervous and telling us to stop growing. Like, we can't stop growing. This only happens once. <laughs> you got to right. let us grow. You got to loan us the money. <laughs> you know? And luckily, we got that solved by moving to another bank. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I was, you know, literally uh, paying, paying bills on one credit card and paying it off with another, uh, trying to stay ahead of the curve as we grew at, you know, 200%, 300% growth rate. Cause then of course the seven daily Zen pulled all the other varietals through the marketplace too. And it was a crazy growth pattern from, you know, 2002 through 2008. And then it started to slow down the percentage wise, but it became big numbers. So at one point we were probably crushing grapes and storing wine in five different facilities. Yeah. That's how big of a monster seven deadly became for us. Cause we wow. just didn't have the capacity to make it all to crush it all in our own facility. How many acres of Zen are you currently growing? You guys own. Uh, now we've, you know, we've acquired a lot more vineyard. We bought the bear ranch property in 2007. That was almost all Zinfandel. And that's, that was about a little over 200 acres. We had planted some Zin for, a big winery back in the nineties and we've converted all that to, to red Zim production too. So that's uh, and then we've been buying, we've been buying Zim from local Lodi growers for years and years. Um, try, you know, trying to, you know, and, and demanding the best quality. That's where we've been buying a lot of the old vine from various Lodi growers over the years that went into the seven deadly Zin and to the earthquake Zin and our lust Zin. And, and we'll have another new Zin coming out too pretty soon <laughs> can we talk about that or is that uh, well, kind of a wrap yeah, right well, well oh no that the, the new one coming out we can't talk about yet but we do have freak shows in now which is gaining national distribution 
you know, to follow up on our Freak Show Cab, Freak Show Red Blend, Freak Show Chardonnay. Now we've got the Zinfandel with uh, the fire-breathing lady on the bottle. And it's getting some great distribution around the country and starting to fly out there. And we're really excited about it. You know, it's funny when you talk about the Freak Show. The first time I had it, my business partner came in and slapped a bottle of uh, Freak Show Red Blend down on my desk and said, you know so much, you would tell me what you think of this wine. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I took it home that night, opened it up. He didn't tell me what he paid for it, which is fortunate because, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, I kind of know his MO. I'm going to try this wine. I was blown away, Dave. I was <laughs> blown away. And that was of the course red I had blend? It up. That was the Freak Show Red Blend? Yeah. Yeah, which is a backbone of Petite Syrah and Syrah, I believe. Usually it's those two grapes that make up the majority of that. It was bright and juicy. And in a word, it was just fun. It was a well, fun wine to drink. Petite Syrah is kind of our secret weapon. I mean, we like to joke that if we could put Petite Syrah into our Chardonnay, it would make it even better. But we put Petite Syrah into basically every red wine we make. <laughs> really? A, pretty much, yeah. No. Even in even our high-end Cabernet, the Rapture, we used to do a traditional Bordeaux blend you know, with Cab Franc, Petit Bordeaux, but now we blend in Petit Syrah into the cab. <laughs> you know, and, and while I'm fond of Petit Syrah, I usually feel like I need to have a toothbrush nearby uh, after I drink it because uh, it, it uh, is so inky and dark and uh, I feel like my teeth turn black. <laughs> I yeah. drink a good bottle of Petit Syrah. Yeah, that is uh, one of the characteristics of Petit Syrah. But that's why we like putting 5, 10, 15% Petit Syrah into just about everything we make. Nice. Especially, well, especially in Zinfandel, Petit Syrah just works. It's kind of a traditional field blend. It's a little Petit Syrah on your Zinf old wine Zinfandel. So. Right. The old days, the, the field yep. blends. Yeah, they often, yeah, the field blends, they, or there's often Carignan and Petit Syrah out there with the Zinfandel and those field blends. Before we move into my favorite portion of the podcast, I do want to. On a more serious note, I want to ask you what you think about what the future holds for California wine industry right now. I mean, we've got climate change, global warming, of course, the fires, the pandemics. I mean, you know, what's next? Locusts? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> this has been a crazy year. Well, and, and uh, I, may, no, I mean, I, I, anybody who reads about the wine business knows that during the pandemic, people drank more. I mean, I guess you're sitting at home. You might, might, might as well just finish the bottle. I'm not driving anywhere. So we, so, you know, sales have actually gone up, which we we're shot, you know, back in March, we're like, Oh my, we thought everything was just going to collapse and we were getting ready to lay people off and everything. And luckily we, we didn't have to, but yeah, climate change is real as farmers. We see that firsthand. I mean, when I was a kid, we never even started harvest till the middle of September. You know, the last few years we picked grapes in July. Now, every, every year we start picking grapes in July. So it's not easy to convince conservative Central Valley farmers that climate change is real, but I think most of them believe it now. Well, they're seeing it with their own eyes and picking it with their own hands. Mm -hmm. You're really picking in July now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The first, you know, the first whites come in, Chardonnay, Sauv Blanc. You know, we like picking some of those early too, just to get the acid. Uh, that's how we make a beautifully balanced Chardonnay as we pick a third of the crop in July, then we pick another third of it you know, mid-August and the last picking maybe late August and just get capture all the flavors in the vineyard, let the vines, let the grapes that remain 
get super ripe and juicy and barrel ferment some of that. We cold ferment in stainless steel, the early pick to have a nice high acid cuvee to blend back into the barrel ferment and getting great quality Chardonnay out of Lodi now by, by farming it right and picking it right. And I, so it's not, it's not the end of the world that climate change is happening. What really we see is spring comes earlier. We had bud break in February um, this year. I've never seen that before. So what's really happening is, you know, it's the season starting sooner. Um, the summers are still great, you know, hot and cold temperature fluctuations that are giving us great quality wines. We're just picking things a lot earlier now than we used to because uh, everything starts growing earlier in the season. So we have a, so that's why we pick now in July and August when it used to be September. <laughs> Are you planning on planting any different varietals that are going to handle the heat better? Have you thought about making any kind of shift to different types of grapes? Well, luckily, things like Syrah and Zinfandel take the heat fine. Like I said, the the Chardonnay, we've learned how to farm it correctly. We're getting beautiful Sauvignon Blanc out of Lodi now, too. So, Really? Oh, yes. So, okay. um, really, a lot of it's canopy management and planting the right clones, I guess, because, you know, my nephew is the vineyard manager and he, he kind of oversees all that and does a very good job of uh, knowing the latest trends of what's working in the warmer regions. So now I think we, uh, Petit Syrah loves heat. So, but, but Lodi is not at hot. I mean, we're region three and a half on the Davis scale, about the same as St. Helena. Okay. But you know what Lodi doesn't love and, and no, and no vineyard does are the fires that have been going on out in the, uh... California. How are you guys? Yeah, fire, fires are that? tough. Um, you know, Lodi, we lucked out. We're not in a forested area. So, you know, we're, we don't have really fire danger, but we do get the smoke. And we had some very bad smoky days. But so far this year, the smoke we got, they called old smoke, and that didn't seem to penetrate the grapes as badly. Also, most of the, since the grapes were ripe so early this year, they're already ripe when the smoke hit. And from what I understand, I think the the worst time for the smoke to hit is like during verasion when the grapes are just getting ripe. But yeah, but we know, but we do source a lot of grapes on the North coast too. Um, and we've had quite a few issues up there with smoke taint. And I know a lot of our friends over there having all kinds of trouble. So it's uh, kind of the new normal though, having fire season in California. So all we can do is, you know, hope for more rain and <laughs> do what we can to lower our carbon footprints and, and uh, I would sure love to see fire season not be the new normal in California. Hopefully we'll be able to figure this out and get it. Yeah, in. I think there's a lot of, of thinking now about how to manage, you know, how to manage our, our wildlands better, too, and our forests. So hopefully we can prevent some of this in the future. But yeah, there's that. But when you get these 70 mile an hour winds and 10 percent humidity, that's just climate change. You can't yeah. do anything about it. <laughs> Definitely something going on. But you know what? Now it's time to find out what's going on in your glass. Yeah, so I was talking about the Freak Show Zinfandel. So I just poured a little bit of that. This is our 2018 vintage. Uh, another crazy freaky label with all kinds of uh, uh, real circus freaks from back in the day. And of course, our marketing team is very young, cool, hip, and <laughs> has like to hide lots of, uh, you know, modern hidden messages and references to all kinds of things that we might be too old to know about but <laughs> so is this going to take us on like some kind of uh magical mystery trip <laughs> yeah on the label are we you know is there some kind of treasure hunt <laughs> there there always is every time i look at it i find something new and i i usually have to sit down with the label designers and 
have them point things out to us who who some of the people are and some of the symbolism that's in it. But yeah, the original Free Show Cabernet label was drawn by a, a guy in Lodi named Ben. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. So now um, they've taken his artwork and we've expanded it to other labels and our marketing team working with a, a great label design company is really, really knocking out of the park with the new labels, the new Freak Show Charnay label with the mermaid on. It's fantastic. The Zen label here has a uh, fire breathing woman on the front. You know, we, we know that women buy probably 70% of the wine. So in the country, so they're the ones out making the choices. So labels are cool. You can get them the first time with a cool, good label, but you got to back it up with great juice. So our winemaking team, as it's so dialed in now, pretty much every red wine they've made gets a gold medal or scores 90 plus points now. And, in one of the publications. So we are uh, very proud of them. <laughs> right. It's one thing to have a cool label on the outside, but what really matters is the wine on the inside. Yep. Uh, yeah. Tell me about the freak shows in. What do you, what's in your glass? What are you tasting there? Oh, it's it just a, a bowl of wild berries right now. 18 has been a, a really strong vintage for Lodi 2018, where most of us are just starting to release the 18s and just phenomenal uh, color depth true zinfandel character and a lot of blackberries kind of like a blackberry pie if you if you've never been to our place for pie you got to come have pie at, at michael david winery we're probably more famous for the pie than the wine well when you come visit me this winter i'll bring, bring you a pie? pie sure just got my new ski van since we're not we're trying not to fly anywhere so we have a van now with for our bikes and our skis and a bed in it and we can drive out to utah and come ski with you i double dog dare you what else you got for us what's in your next glass oh yeah, uh, so you're talking about diversity of varietals in Lodi. Besides the Rhones, I you know we're really into the alternative Bordeaux. So we've been playing around, with, you know, Petit Verdot, making a great Petit Verdot under the Inkblot label. But today I brought the Inkblot Cabernet Franc. So this is the 2017, and we love Cab Franc. And I think Cab Franc has got a future to grow. It's one of those wines that you can get on a steakhouse wine list because I think people just like to say Cabernet Franc, whereas Viognier, no one, no one ever ordered that because they didn't know how to pronounce it and they didn't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I know how to pronounce it. Viognier. Viognier, yes. Viognier. Cab, Cab Franc, you know, usually a blender, usually known for being uh, a little bell peppery. Um, right, right. Well, in Lodi, if you grow it right on a big quadrilateral uh, on the west side of town here where we get the most wind year after year, we avoid that bell pepper and we just get beautiful fruit. Goes into barrel French oak for about 17 months wow. and just comes out perfect. A true Cab Franc character without the funkiness. I'm not familiar with the Inkblot brand. Inkblot, yes. Small production. You know, I think we're, we do about six, five or 6,000 six packs of this one. So what, 3,000 cases, yep. and the Petit Verdot is less than that. Each one has a, a Rorschach inkblot test on the label. Can't see I, can, how, I can see it, yeah. Yeah. Um, don't understand it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I see or, butterflies. Exactly. That's what a lot of people say. So, you know, Cap Franc, and, I mean, uh, it's not really that well-known. Like you said, it's kind of more known as the red-headed stepchild in Bordeaux, mostly a blending wine. You're finding a lot of success with your Cap Franc? Uh, we, we are. I mean, it's for us, you know, like I said, that's a, that's a small, you know, batch for us to have, you know, 3,000 case product, you know, because most of our brands are much larger than that. Uh, but but it's, it's one of those door openers. I can, you know, if I go in to see a sommelier or walk into a small wine sh 
a high-end wine shop, it's, it, I can pull Cab Franc or Petit Verdot out of my bag and show them something completely different from what they might think Michael Dave is all about. So these are what, really fun. What's the flavor profile of what's in your glass now? Uh, some leather. Uh, that nice, yeah, that, you know, we French, the French oak we get, we get some of the best barrels out of, from some of the best cooperages in France, usually a medium plus toast. So some nice vanilla overtones from the barrel. Fairly good tannin structure too. Well, it's just typical Lodi, dark, rich, juicy. All right. Well, you are definitely going to have to sneak one of those into Utah. Oh, sure. <laughs> that we can do. <laughs> Dave, this has just been great. It's been great catching up with you. It's been wonderful hearing about the history of Michael David and the, the brand management, and also just about how wonderful your wines are at such a phenomenally reasonable price point. And I cannot emphasize that. I don't know how you do it. I'm just glad you do. And I am also really glad that you took the time to spend this time with me today on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks. And we, we do have more expensive wines. You know, the Inkblot is like 35 bucks. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and of course our Rapture Cabernet is 60, 70 in that area as long with the less in. So, so yeah, we're not all low price wine, but, uh, well, let me, let me rephrase that. I never intended to say low price. I really want to yeah. emphasize the value, value. Yeah. That, the wines, that the wines provide because yeah. I do think that all of the wines, regardless of your price points, are phenomenal. They really they over are. They definitely over-deliver. For they the over-deliver. Yeah. And, and so please don't think I would ever say that the, your wines are cheap. They're not. <laughs> they just I, develop. They just, I, I've been told that by LA sommeliers in Los Angeles – I'm sorry, we can't put a wine that cheap on our menu. <laughs> yeah. They charge more. <laughs> I've been told that. Yeah, we won't tell anyone. Charge whatever you like. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been such a pleasure spending this time with you. I do hope we get a chance to catch up a little later in the year. Yes. Face to face or mask to mask. Yep. Thank you for for being here, Dave. Say hi to your family. And and to yours as well. Thanks. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley, and the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And remember, until the next time, do good, drink well.